Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning and let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. So instead of asking us where the YouTube is located, where the Patreon is located, where the merchandise is located, you can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club, Clubhouse. So right now it's closed off, it's in beta testing, you have to be an iPhone member, but if you join Patreon and through Patreon join the Discord, you will be able to get uh, Clubhouse invites. And the reason why we want people to get those Clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans, and you need to get invited to take part of that, including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and without further ado here is the episode take care hey so we're here with the real sankara hours podcast we're gonna let them introduce themselves without further ado uh, I'll go in alphabetical order, start it with Adam and then Peter, you know, to describe who you are, where to find you, and what you guys are about with the podcast. Cool. Yeah. So my name's Adam Hudson. You can find me on Twitter at Adam Hudson5 um, and also Real Sankara Hours at Sankara Hours. Um, I've, I've been a freelance writer slash journalist for almost a decade at this point. So I'm a writer and I'm also musician, drummer, do West African drumming. And yeah, uh, Peter and I co-founded this podcast almost a year ago um yeah. and yeah it's basically like a uh basically yeah pol- uh new current events and political commentary from like a black marxist pan-african perspective so it's yeah i would just it's mostly like a political commentary kind of like pundit punditry podcast but like from a very specific like black perspective yeah yeah i'm peter m gun follow me at m gun peter um i don't really tweet that much but also i just want to say i'm very honored to be on here um long time champagne sharks listener oh and thank you yeah both yeah. of us so <laughs> yeah i've listened to many episodes and wondered you know i should be on here <laughs> <laughs> but here you go i uh, see yeah it's yeah, a secret it's, um, a, it's a manifestation so why is it law of yeah. attraction yeah uh, I mean I'm a cook based out of uh, Portland Maine though I am in the process of moving to a different city in Maine but uh, yeah also I guess general I don't know uh, writer or in previous forms writer slash uh, I've had a few blogs I don't know just kind of a general shit kicker on the left that you know tries to, to get involved in stuff um, and I don't know I, I mean yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. Uh, like extreme, extremely communist. Um, so. Um. Yeah. Like our podcast is like a mix of current events, commentary. We also talk about music and. Yeah. Because um, yeah, we were in a band together for like six months. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Did you guys so, meet from the band, or were you already acquainted with each other no. before the band? Uh, we. So we. 
we went to Stanford together, but I yeah. graduated a year after Peter, so we got to know each other. I think I think after, right around the Occupy. Yeah, yeah, I started doing like Occupy stuff. So I basically had nothing to do and pretty aimless after graduation, and so I kind of fell into that. And that kind of, I mean, I'd always been political, but that like actually radicalized me. And then I found Adam, and then um, you know, I, he helped me like get a couple. Uh, journalism gigs when I thought that was the thing I wanted to do. And then we just kind of have remained friends for like 10 years. And then yeah. just figured we start a podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm also involved in um, uh, uh, like other kind of organizing um, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, United States of Africa. So, and, and so I mentioned it because like on our podcast, we do talk about um, activism and movement stuff because I think as you can tell, like as Peter is talking, like we, we both have uh, like, activist experience I, I i was when i was in college i did a lot of um anti-war and racial justice organizing um and like naacp tutoring in um east palo alto so um yeah like my activist groups go pretty deep i've been involved for yeah a good a good chunk of if not my entire adult life at, at least at this point so we we, we bring that in, into the podcast so like we're yeah we're talking about current events but we're also kind of like adding our own perspective and even experiences uh in, into the pod into the podcast like there's yeah like we talk about like activists stuff some sometimes yeah. political strategy yeah um, yeah we'll do we'll do some we try to do some theory we're like working our way through walter rodney intermittently yeah um stuff like that and i and it's also like yeah we feel i don't want to say grizzled veterans or maybe adam <laughs> feels more like a grizzled veteran but only in the sense that like you know we all we like presage the rise of the online left um, <laughs> so i remember when twitter wasn't a thing when all we had was like alternet and no one even talked about capitalism so, yep. so you're definitely not like a, a Johnny come lately to no, yeah, Wait, because no. one thing one thing I've realized is that a lot of people have formed their politics very recently and I think it also gives people a convert's uh, zeal which yeah. is mm-hmm. no, no, no zeal anymore I mean. <laughs> yeah I think you have to get past that point uh, of the honeymoon period slash convert zeal period to get yeah. you know kind of more pragmatic and level headed yeah. now, now, now I feel almost Drake like and they're like man I wish I could you know I'm tired of this shit I wish I could uh, <laughs> just forget everything I knew about politics sometimes but it's really like both of us see it as like a lifelong thing so yeah trying to, trying to you know put ourselves as use into the struggle for the long term I suppose mm-hmm. as one of the uh, when I joined the AAPRP, the All African People's Revolutionary Party. One of the the party elders, the cadre, told me that um, this is a long distance race, not a sprint. And I think like what you're referring to, T, like it kind of gets that. That I think sometimes when people get involved, get involved in activism and new to it, they I think subconsciously ex- expect it's going to be a sprint, but it's actually like a this is a long distance marathon race. Like you have to kind of be in this for the long haul, and you're gonna you're gonna encounter <clears throat> ups and downs and failures and loss, and especially if you're on the left, you're gonna experience a lot of failure. <laughs> most most lo- lot of losing, a lot know. of losing. And, some, wins. and sometimes you, when you do get a victory, like you don't realize it until later, and then you're like, oh yeah, like we actually did accomplish something, um, however small. Uh, but yeah, Peter's right like we're kind of just in this for the long haul and also like just being black in america definitely for myself i feel like that's personally why i'm in it for the long haul because it's like this is like the liberation struggle for our community i think is is 
a 400, 500 year long fight, you know, ever since slavery. So I, I, I see, I see my role as like basically just continuing that because like we're still dealing with like a lot of the, like the many of the issues we're dealing with stem from like, you know, the transatlantic slave trade and all the bullshit that came from that. So, um, I, I, I see it more as like, it's not a theoretical, you know, convert thing. This is like a serious, like life or death, um, thing. Like it's not, I'm, I'm looking at it from that perspective. And I think I've, I've said that on the podcast several times, but yeah, like I think some, pe- I think sometimes people like when they come to activism, it's, it's mostly through like, um, and it's just, everybody kind of goes through this phase. Like you, you read a bunch of books in college and like you read Marx and you're like, yeah, the solution is just, ah! you know, like they're just, you know, you're so fired up and angry. It's like, okay, yeah, you go through the phase, but then you realize like, oh wait, like things aren't as easy as i initially thought and so you have to kind of yeah go through your ups and downs but then you you the thing is you learn from them and then figure out how to keep fighting though i didn't really read marx in college in college it was all like um like critical theory like adorno type stuff um or just critical race theory and then i didn't really become a marxist until i was like delivering pizza and just grinding it out um, and then looking at the uh, looking at the thing you have to sign at the end of every shift that shows the sales you did, and then I just started doing the math, and then I just started like listening to theory like while I was driving, and then you know I I felt like feel like radic you know you get radicalized much more through the actual experience of uh, you know being on the ass end of the system than any book that you read. Though I also think that uh, reading and studying is an important part of one's uh, political development. So yeah. You know, but it's both and it's not either or. Yeah, yeah, it's it's holistic. And yeah, we do a lot of theory reading. Like, yeah, we're working through Walter Rodney and then we've uh, we have I think a a few times we've definitely uh, read and discussed um, Afro pessimism and Frank Wilder's. uh, Well, Frank will and um, Jared Sexton's. uh, I think he was the one who came up with uh, the libidinal economy term. So we discussed that on an episode a couple of months ago. And I definitely love the interview you had to with uh, Frank Wilderson on Champagne Sharks. That was really good. So, yeah, we, we talk about a lot of stuff. <laughs> the, the, uh, so you guys, in what ways do you guys' politics um, differ as far as... Because um, I, I know, uh, Peter, you say you're communist, right? Um, but yeah. I don't recall. Did you say that you're communist, Adam? Like, in, oh. what, in what ways do they differ? And do they ever differ in ways where it's like fundamentally different, where there's like a certain thing that you guys know, if this topic comes up, we're oh. going to have radically different um, oh. views. Uh, oh, oh, so I, oh, so yeah, I probably, yeah, I didn't really uh, inter- <laughs> and say like say what my ideology, but yeah, pan-African Marxist, uh, communist, socialist, like I kind of use them interchangeably, but yeah, like so you, you guys know, align on the type of um, yeah, yeah. okay. I, I'll, I'll I'll say like uh, I join the all African People's Revolutionary Party because I think like that party best represents my views um, and it's more like in the it's definitely Marxist but it's it takes in a lot of like basically like at, like socialism and communism in Africa was it's kind of like its own thing um, so like Kwame Nkrumah Amis Sekuture Thomas Sankara who the, the podcast is named after I, 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 I tend to look up to them as models of black liberation and what so socialism uh would look like but it's not radically 
different from well it, it depends because like uh, i wouldn't say i'm an anarchist i'll, I'll, I'll just say that uh, <laughs> so, uh no. and so peter i think it's yeah. probably like a lot more harsh towards anarchists than i am probably um only because like i went through an anarchist phase and i went through like occupy which kind of the biggest demonstration of like anarchist principles writ large and i saw it's uh and so i saw its shortcomings and you know i, I kept like trying to read the theory of anarchism or whatever though i never actually read the red book um and it just you know kept coming up short and then i mean there was a while where i was resistant to marxism and then actually ended up kind of becoming more open to it and then you know marxism leninism just through understanding the way the role it played in like african liberation struggles and yeah i think adam's a little heavier on the pan-africanism than i am a little yeah i guess more on the class struggle element but there isn't anything that it's like yeah we're at total odds about i mean we challenge each other but i think it's actually a good we have a pretty good healthy way of like going through disagreements when they pop up Um, yeah but also we've known each other for so long so it's not yeah Um, what do you think is the strongest axis on which you guys align it seems to be the marxist um i mean based on the description you gave so far the marxist communist axis i would guess right yeah i mean i hating the democratic party really. <laughs> yes oh oh, oh oh yeah oh just uh, f- <laughs> there have been episodes where like peter has sent me an article he's like i know this is gonna make you mad so i have a very yeah, yeah and he does the same to me too yeah yeah we uh we definitely like de- i think definitely turns with like axis i would say like definitely intense hatred of the democratic party and the two-party system like intense but uh um, and and imperial anti-imperialism. Oh yeah, oh. very yeah, very. Because yeah. the thing is, like like a lot of my writing, like if anybody's familiar with my writing, I've written about Guantanamo. I spent two weeks in Guantanamo reporting there back in 2013. I've written about drone strikes, and it was during the Obama years. And uh, I do remember, and I've written about like how Obama was increasing the number of uh, drone strikes in U.S. covert wars in Africa, particularly Somalia, and including the. 2011 NATO intervention in Libya, which, you know, at this point, like it turned Libya into a failed state. So that that's and also a part of the reason why what that's kind of what relates to my interest in Pan-Africanism is, is uh, um, taking interests in Africa from like, yeah, like an, an anti-imperialist perspective, which is not, that's definitely been part of like the black intellectual tradition for a long time. I mean, even for example, in the 1930s, when Italy invaded Ethiopia, there were African-Americans here in the United States who were protesting it. And there were some African-Americans who, who went as soldiers to fight side by side with the Ethiopians against Ita- uh, the Italian invasion. Um, so I, I, I see like my pan-African perspective falling in line with, with that anti-imperialist tradition within the african-american intellectual tradition so um yeah like so that's, that's definitely like a part of that's definitely part of our access is, is anti-imperialist and uh I, I will mention that i i do think that um whatever is called the quote-unquote left in the united states uh i don't think is anti-imperialist or anti like empire enough and i think um that definitely fell apart during the obama years like whatever because there was like a brief anti-war movement during the bush years with the iraq war and then once obama came in and he ran on like he ran on opposing the iraq war that's what distinguished him from hillary clinton in the 2008 primary and so he came in and he got the nobel Peace prize in 2009 <laughs> while he was still sending troops he increased the number of troops in afghanistan while getting a nobel 
Nobel Peace Prize. And then he increased, like, you know, exponentially increased the number of drone strikes and also institutionalized the practice of targeted killing within the executive branch and basically handed off a kill list to Donald Trump, which he's been able to use. So uh, during that period, yeah, the anti-war movement definitely fell off within the left because, uh, yeah, it's kind of American. People stopped caring about war, especially yeah. especially if it's drones. It's like, oh, okay, we're not sending American soldiers there to kill people. So yeah, stop caring. Yeah, that's the point. It's like I've been thinking about how the, it's not just that like the police are becoming militarized. It's that uh, the military is becoming more copified that like in its approach towards conflicts or whatever because yeah I mean obviously it doesn't want to have the political risk of committing uh, American soldiers to a place and then having lots of them die because that looks bad so if there's a way to just enforce the global order uh, through you know pushing buttons on screen stuff obviously that's going to be uh, preferable uh, yeah and uh, and I think that yeah like just full-on anti-imperialism is always like the uh, I think the big to the degree that like there needs to be litmus tests on the left I think that's the thing because yeah there's so many situations where like the it gets muddled and then I mean I will always throw down with the tankies um, though I really do hate the term you know if things get hot on the internet or whatever because I always feel like it's not a bad thing to hate America too much or that or you know the idea of like oh well you know anti-imperialism is just licking like China's boot or whatever it's like I think you have to understand what the actual balance of power is um, globally and, you know, the who's in the imperial core and who's on the periphery and all that fun stuff. And so when you understand that, it's like, yeah, nobody's even close. So the idea that there's, you know, competing imperialisms right now is uh, not materialist as as the one Marx to put in the Marxist uh, phrasing. And, and also, like, I mean, uh, another part of my writing that I've written about a lot is uh, uh, police brutality and gender because so like I, I live in the San Francisco I live in the San Francisco Bay Area I've lived here my whole life and so like, like there is that wave that 2014 wave of gentrification and so I started writing about it because I, I was just familiar as a local with the Bay Area so I started writing about it more and then police brutality so like like a lot of way I look at things is make connections between like um, the U.S. sort of death machine abroad and the kind of domestic death apparatus within the United States and how that death apparatus oftentimes like aim, aims its crosshairs at black people, right? So I I often try to make the point that, um, you know, there is this feedback loop between American police and the United States military. Um, and when I was in Guantanamo, I kind of saw that. Um, and so I, and, and that was part of like, you know, why, why when Peter pitched the idea to me about the podcast, why I was actually pretty excited about it is because it, it kind of gives us a chance to talk about like these big these these big grander things that are real, but the the podcast format allows for deeper discussion in that. So um, in terms of like litmus tests on the left, uh, I would also add, in addition to anti-imperialism, a strong critique of white supremacy in the United States and globally. And uh, that's personally where I would split from um, what is 
called dominantly the quote-unquote left in the United States. And I think probably the term I settled is like the colonial left, because I think there are many on the left who do not take, in addition to not taking imperialism seriously, they don't take critiques of whiteness and white supremacy seriously, especially from a black perspective. And that's just like, there's always been conflicts within the left United States over the issue of like race and, you know, race versus class reductionism. And so like, you know, I kind of took the approach was like, I'd rather just focus on joining organizations that already have like a black radical perspective rather than try to convince white leftists to listen to me because I'm still black in those spaces. Mm. So it's like, okay, so fine. Like I'll just, there's already black led radical organizations that honestly do need a lot of support. So I would rather focus on my efforts there and like, you know, it, 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 to, to the extent that I can, you know, work with uh, other non-black leftists, like totally like still do. But, um, you know, I just think that uh, there are just certain things I just don't put up with. Let's just let's just say that uh, yeah. when it comes to like some of the internalized white supremacy within the left and people not taking it seriously because I do think it's a huge problem and I would definitely add that as like a litmus test. You think? Yeah, yeah. You think white supremacy right. on the left is a big problem? Uh, I, wait, 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 were you saying that you think white supremacy on the left is a big problem? Uh, I don't, I don't uh, know. No, I don't know if I misheard you. No, I'm saying uh, I thought yeah. that's what I heard you say. And I just want to make oh, sure I heard you correctly. There's, or did I hear oh, you I wrong? Just, yeah, I was just saying I think like there's internalized white supremacy. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and both of us have experience of, you know, being in a room full of white lefties. And especially me, I'm like racially ambiguous enough that people don't always know how to to code me. And so sometimes white people talk like they're, you know, amongst themselves around me. So I can be a little incognito in that in that circumstance. And it's more just like, um, it doesn't matter how left you are, like you're still white and you're still, uh, you know, you grow up in the settler colonial system and you've inculcated all of that ideology. And also just, you know, the kind of material facts of America. And it's not a thing you can think your way out of, though lefties really do want to believe that they can. And, you know, they all want to believe that, um, you know, they're extremely anti-racist and many of them are sincere, but it's just sort of the gravity, the inherent kind of title gravity just makes it that like you get a room full of white people together and you get them excited and then you start getting lynch mob vibes. Especially, especially like when it, like I've just seen, you know, it's been, it's, I've always wondered like how white people like lynch someone, like where does that impulse come from? But I see it, and especially on Twitter, you can see like kind of the mob mentality. And especially if there's like, you know, I'm not a defender of black reactionaries or, you know, any kind of shit lib MSNBC talking head or whatever, you know, Joanne Reed types. But I can also see, you know, when like a black person that defies the rules that mm-hmm. like this group mm-hmm. of white people have established as to like, you know, moral action or whatever, like the desire to get rid of them becomes very fervent very quickly. And yep. so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's why we I always start keeping in mind as we mm-hmm. as we sort of move in the in the internet and you know public media space. Yeah, that's why I said internalized white supremacy because I don't want to I don't want to say like the entire left is white supremacist, but I, it's just like yeah, like just the fact of living in the United States with the history it has and the material reality of America of it still being um, a white dominant country. Um, just as a matter of fact, that's just, just what it is. Um, 
And the fact that it is a white dominant country that stems from slavery and genocide, and we're still seeing the manifestations of that reality, um, particularly with police brutality, and especially like you know with these these last summer's uprisings against the, uh, the murder of George Floyd. Like I think was um, you know what I thought was interesting about like that is it definitely shocked the conscience of collective white America that just because of how brutal that it, the the video was of him dying like watching this man lose his life for nine fucking minutes and his cop just have his you know goddamn knee on his neck and no one's doing anything um you know like it's just a reminder of like yeah like that that's just been going on for 400 years and because white people are still white people in america uh they have the opportunity to be like to pretend it's not as urgent of a problem and that's kind of what i'm getting at with internalized white supremacy within the left is that like because like again like you know the left in the united states reflects the reality of america in terms of like it being dominated by white people it's going to internalize and reinforce all the baggage that comes from whiteness um even if people are well-intentioned this you know i'm not just this is not to say like every white leftist is like you know uh is some sort of secret clansman although some probably are but i wouldn't say all of them yeah some of them don't even aren't even aware of it themselves i think it's so right like almost subconscious because it's just so deep baked deep into the fabric of america yeah right I agree. <laughs> yeah but it's just like i just i just think like they uh, because of just the reality just being white in america they don't have the kind of urgency that's required to deal with the real systematic violence that black people experience every day so you know i i think like a lot of like black radical organizers who have a lot of experience like come to the same conclusion that that like hey look like we're we're better off leading and controlling our own organizations because we can't trust like well-meaning white people to do what's required to quote-unquote help us because uh, because they are white and living in america they still they still have to do the work themselves to challenge their own yeah. fucking white. That's that's the thing. And a lot of white people don't want to do that. Like, I, I think if white people are the ones who actually do do the work themselves to challenge their own whiteness, they actually do become a- effective allies to the extent that that word means something right now. But because, like, white people don't clean up their own shit, it's like, okay, well, we, we can't we can't help you get over your, over your own white guilt, but then, like, also lead our own movements to take care of our own problems and then, like, deal with whatever drama and internalized white supremacy that they're still dealing with. But, but then claiming to be revolutionary at the same time. So that, that's what I, that's what I mean is that like I, I I just a lot of times in those movements like people just don't have that kind of urgency to deal with the problems that face Black people. And I think it's proven, especially with the waves of Black Lives Matter protests against police brutality. Like those weren't led by socialists; those were led by righteously angry, pissed off Black people. And then like some of whom are socialists. What's that? Some of whom are socialists. Some of, yeah, but like they're not taking their cues from like you know some of the colonial left organizations but the thing is that like those other left-wing movements wind up following their cue because again like yeah like they're kind of the sense of urgency is not just it's just not there uh to the extent that it's not there to the degree that it should be there if that makes sense well and you know the like yeah the long debate of like class versus race is race super structural i mean i think if you kind of take the very long materialist view you can understand yeah race the concept of race and the systems uh black liberation and also you know for indigenous liberation decolonization because the other thing that is the really heavy lift and why i don't think you're ever going to get a 
you know, a majority of white people to do this is that, wow, you know, liberation struggles from colonized people are like demanding a full realization of their humanity mm-hmm. inherent, like inherently in sort of, you know, white people engaging in those same struggles in solidarity is like some form of self-annihilation. Like they have to destroy uh, the parts of them that are white and act and think that way. And yeah, you know, the, yeah, you're you, some of the like advanced, you know, avant-garde are going to do that, but the average person is not going to go through that pain. I mean, I, I remember, cause I grew up Unitarian. Um, so I've been in the, I, I don't want to say dark heart, the, blindingly white heart of white liberalism for <laughs> for a long time. And I remember like all the, like before Tumblr, like going to anti-racism trainings and stuff and, uh, you know, learning about white privilege and all this stuff and seeing like, you know, the most well-meaning, you know, liberal-minded white people just get like extremely upset at the idea that their existence involves some complicity in the system. And just, you know, the... After a while, I understand that, you know, only liberals are like gluttons for punishment and have like the masochistic tendency. Like you're just average white person is is only going to take like, you know, shitting on white people for so long before they just tune it out and then just go about the rest of their lives. And so I think, you know, I I mean, I, I don't say the hope. I think it's probably it might be fair to say that sort of as capitalism intensifies, intensifies and you know, the working class generally is just getting crushed and squeezed like those, you know, the perceptions of whiteness, the psychological wages of whiteness that Du Bois talks about. Well, there will be diminishing returns on that. And maybe finally you can get to a point where there's actual solidarity. But I definitely don't think that we're there yet. Um, So it's hard because, you know, when you like interact with the white lefties, they're always so well-meaning. And they want to do the right thing, but it's just like the, the problem's too big than than you know you. So I always I always feel like just just try not to fuck things up. Uh, but even I, that can be a tall order. Do you feel <laughs> Do you feel like white leftists are significantly better than? I'm trying to think how to put this question. Well, I know in class politics, white leftists can be considered uh, significantly better than white than white liberals. But yeah. Uh, on average, when it comes to race, do you feel like white leftists are much better on race and class than white liberals? Or do you think they're only better on race, but pretty much the same on class or only, I'm sorry, it's pretty much the same. Uh, let me rephrase the question. Mm-hmm. I, I had, I'm on uh, no, anti-allergy medicine. Yeah, yeah, I'm on anti-allergy medicine. So I'm a little like uh, wonky. So bear with me. But uh, yeah, so I'm going to rephrase it. Um, I think we all agree that white leftists are better on class issues than uh, white liberals. I was wondering if you, how much better you feel they are on race issues compared to white liberals, as in despite all the problems and shortcomings you mentioned them having with um, race, do you still think on race they're much better than white liberals? Or do you think they're equally bad just in a different way or in the same way? I think it depends on which white leftists, you know, we're referring to. Um, but I, I would say in general, like the white leftists who are willing to, to take their cues and listen to other black leftists and radicals, I think are usually better because I'm, it. I want to add it, something. If you want to take the time to subdivide, you know, different types of white leftists, 
I don't mind if you do that. I don't oh, know okay. if you find that. If you, I don't know if yeah. you find that some particular strains of white leftists are much better than you know. Because one thing uh, about me, I don't understand the subdivisions like uh, tankies, PSL, right, right, anarcho leftists. Uh, like, yeah. like I'm very bad at that stuff. So I'm always interested in learning the nuances between those things. Yeah, I'm just trying to. I guess like I'm. Yeah, because I'm trying to like parse it through, and I I think. I think in general, like any kind of white leftist, if if usually if they're willing to um, listen and take their cues from black organizers, uh, like for example, let's say um, I remember one time this is back in uh, 2017, and uh, it was a protest against um, this young man named Angel Ramos who was sh- shot and killed by Vallejo police, and there was a protest at the police station, and it was um, mostly black and Latino led. And um, there are some white people and, um, you know, there are some white people who are willing to like form, um, be part of like a human shield between the police and the protesters. Like they're willing to do that. So I've known that like it is in my experience, like white leftists in general who are willing to actually um, be willing to actually be involved in like that kind of organizing uh, on issues that impact black people and and other non-whites. I think over time, like just by doing that, they have a better understanding but it it requires an effort on their part to be willing to humble their own whiteness like because i think like the type of white person who's willing to like literally put their body on the line at a protest like that um has reached a point where like their sense of humanity is like kind of i guess overriding their white ego to yeah. It that way so i think like so i the reason why i put it that way is because like i i don't really i haven't really found like examples of like specific white leftists in terms of ideology who are better on race than white liberals but i have found that like the ones who are actually willing to put in like the you know the actual physical effort of organizing with alongside black organizers like not taking over the movement because that's also another problem like the ones who are who are willing to put their ego aside not like take over black movements and the work that black organizers are do doing but the ones who are willing to like stand side by side as real like i mean if the, the if the term ally is gonna make is gonna mean anything like that would make sense like okay yeah you're actually being an ally like you're actually you're willing to stand side by side with like a black led movement for like a higher cause because you know, you, you think that the, the cause is important. I think the ones who usually do that, not just one or two times, but over and over again, oftentimes like have a better, I think, understanding of race because then it becomes not just theoretical, but like actually like a real thing and that they're willing to be committed to. I think those people oftentimes have a better, are better on race than white liberals. But I don't think a white leftist can just be automatically better on race just because like they read like, the right books or have like the right ideology. I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't think I've met a, a white leftist who's become better on race just by reading a bunch of books or having the right ideology. What usually happens is that like they're willing to put their bodies on the line and actually do real work. And then over time, like they start learning and also like they start learning and challenging like their own whiteness and whatever like, you know, preconceived uh, ignorance that they had. But yeah, like t- to do that, like actually requires real work, not just like reading books. Yeah, I, I I guess the way I think about it, I, I do kind of, I feel like sometimes, I guess, the white left in the sense of, I guess, uh, you know, from like, quote unquote, Bernie Perot through DSA to, I guess, you know, the more communist elements can get outflanked just because 
when sort of the anti-racism industrial complex exploded, it kind of got promulgated through, you know, the more uh, professional managerial class type circles, you know, Mm -hmm. Tumblr left and all that stuff. And for them, you know, because they have more economic security, they can sort of take up anti-racism as a hobby and learn all the lingo and stuff. And, you know, they, so when like the topic comes up, um, then they can always, they can, you know, name drop whatever they need to name drop and throw down all the, all the right lingo and be like, see, this proves that, uh, the, you know, the DNC, uh, you know, that liberals are better. And also because there is like a much bigger class of, you know, uh, black liberal consultant, Democrat operative types who mm-hmm. also learn the lingo and throw it down and are willing to turn it against the left. And so, you know, when the identity politics debate comes up, it is it can be a, a little one-sided, but also, so there's that. But I think that, I mean, there's also like a different kind of more Marxist understanding of race that I think ends up being more useful for the class struggle. And so the problem is that that isn't really kind of disseminated widely enough in the way and, you know, taught with the same kind of rigor. So when you're, if you're like new to politics, you get drawn into socialism through the Bernie campaign or whatever. And then you see all the kind of cynical attacks about Bernie bros and the white left. And then you turn into like a stupid Paul person, then yeah, you kind of end up on the losing end, but I don't know if one's particularly better than the other. So <laughs> yeah, it's true. It, I mean, it's, it's not really yeah. much much but, there to draw one. But, but they are they are more advanced in sort of the lingo and you know all the intersectionality and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I, I will. I will also say they're more advanced in pretending to listen at the very least. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because also because the stakes are lower. Like there's not like the challenge of you know unifying a workplace that is diverse uh, to organize to union to unionize it and you know work through whatever racial issues are there are much different than like, uh, you know, whatever is going on in your Slack channel and then having a, uh, then needing to call in a diversity consultant to your office or whatever. I mean, they're different stakes, so they're different tasks. Because there's not a lot of material reorganization of reality going on in the liberal project. The liberal project is just um, about getting along in in a nominal way. And uh, keeping things the same at the end of the day, just that's just making sure that you're more polite in the uh, exactly inequities. Yeah, yeah. That actually reminds me of like I was listening to. I mean, speaking of like white liberals, I was listening to this uh, New York Times podcast called uh, uh, "Nice White Parents" or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, the title's just like. Were, you, did, were you hate listening, or were you hoping to like it in an earnest way? I was kind of like hate listening. Just okay. part of me is masochistic. So, but actually, what I found uh, there was actually something that was interesting in it um, because they they talked about like the debate around um, desegregation and uh, integration in New York uh, City public schools, and you know, and basically how. Um, the reason why, like a lot of the integration and desegregation that was promised, like post Brown v. Board and during like the '60s, part of the reason why it was stalled is because of um, you know white parents, like they didn't. And so, like the, the the fault line of the debate was interesting because I actually think the fault line of the debate still stands now. The way uh, desegregation and integ- integration was marketed to white parents and what they were responding to is uh, we want racial harmony. 
like all different groups and races of people coming together more like kind of holding hands and skipping along to the rainbow kind of thing. Whereas black and Latino parents, especially like that was not their concern. Their concern was that, hey, look, like segregation meant that black people worked the worst jobs and the schools were inferior. So the only way that their children could get a better education in the hopes that they could get a good job and and, and take care of their own material condition is by going to a you know, white school and having those schools be integrated so that black students could have the same educational opportunities as, as white students. But um, you know, when that was happening, like a lot of white parents just they just didn't they didn't like they didn't really like like it. They they didn't want like basically no. to share the same spaces. Well, as, well they they don't they didn't want to be inconvenienced if i remember their whole Mm -hmm. you know it's 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 a great representation of like the white reactionary mindset because it's just like well my kid's school is like right over there it's two blocks away but now they have to be bused you know across the city um you know because of some crazy liberal scheme and you know without really understanding the uh the you know the actual motives behind it and I think there are some critiques of busing to be made, but, you know, without really engaging in any of that, it's just, I don't like this and I want it to go away. And mm-hmm. so therefore it's uh, the people, you know, who are most visibly uh, and less powerful than me because they're the easier ones to go after. I'll just go after them because it, uh, yeah, I mean, once again, like rioting over busing is, so it's just, it's mystifying to me, right? Like the, the white lynch mob mentality. So it's taken me a lot of effort to like try and understand and why, like, anyone who imagines themselves, right, to be, like, a moral, rational person, like, does this kind of stuff. Uh. Yeah, yeah, because, like, the reason why I brought that up is because, like, the white liberal parents, again, these are liberal parents. These weren't conservatives. These are all, like, white white parents who were self-identified liberals. Their thing is that they wanted, um, the thing that drew them to the idea of integrating schools was this idea of racial harmony and like, oh, like, let's just, you know, all like... All right, because they were tired of seeing the riots on TV. Yeah, they weren't concerned about like changing material material realities and also redistributing resources and power and and wealth like that wasn't that was not the thing that they had in mind but when it for black parents that's what they were lo- looking for like they were looking for like hey we want our our children to get a better education so that they could live a better life like they had a more material concern which does address issues of um how resources are allocated on racial and class lines so yeah the white parents and black parents had completely different concerns so, like, the white parents weren't thinking about like changing the system they're just they're just like oh let's just like all you know get along and hold hands and walk to the rainbow like they weren't thinking about redistributing resources and wealth and opportunity so let me ask you when when you guys say that they were just tired of seeing the riots on TV. You think they were tired of seeing it just because it was unpleasant and they didn't like to be reminded that the... Yeah. Um, so, so you don't think there was the sense of, I feel bad for those poor black people when they when they said, were feeling tired of the riots. Like, it was a more self-interested reason for feeling um, I mean, it depends. Obviously, some white, you know, the white people that take the time to understand what racism is, um, that, you know, they have a different understanding of what they're seeing, but I what I've come to understand is that most white people just see racism as something that's not their problem it's just something that's out there and you know they don't want to think of themselves as racist but i think a lot of them get to the point you know the ones that aren't like active clan members they just get to the point where they don't have to deal with it so it's just they they just don't want to think about it so then when it bubbles up and is in front of their face yeah they i mean it is you know shocking imagery and the sort of worship of property that undergirds all of like american ideology and i 
identity. It's, you know, extra horrifying to those petty bourgeois suburbanite types. And so, yeah, for them, it is just like, I want this to go away. They don't really care what happens. Yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah, because I think like, you know, uh, maybe there is like some sort of like paternalistic, like, oh, I do feel like bad for black people. Like, you know, because every person has like a conscience. And, And that's why I was saying like the George Floyd protest, I think it actually did wake up the conscious of collective white America because what was different about this round of protests versus the first round of protests in 2014 and 2015 with Black Lives Matter is that there were a lot more white people. And I think the attitude now is similar to even the 60s and and, and those parents um, when it came to integration. And I think, um, yeah, I think a lot of it was like... uh, uh, they, I think on a deep subconscious level, they wanted the problem to go away. And the reason why I say that is because um, there was a poll done, I think it was by Pew Research, and it showed the level of support for Black Lives Matter from June of 2020 to September 2020. And within three months, uh, white support for Black Lives Matter dropped. Uh, I think it was around like 15%, but it dropped like significantly in those period of uh, three months. And so like, so that means like there was one point where like most white people were sympathetic and supportive with the protests and like what black people are going through. But then after three months, like their support dropped. So that means like, okay, well, what the hell happened? I mean, well, I think one thing it does show is that like, you know, they probably like a good chunk of them probably were not that serious to pe- to begin with. They just saw like, you know, the George Floyd video. And I think what was unique about the George Floyd video is that even with some of the people who are, are usually blue lives matter types, like that death was so horrific that like even those people were like, yo, that was that was fucked up. They yeah, some drop. some media conservatives yeah. even uh were going to war with Candace Owen, like, you know, okay, we usually agree with you most of the time about black people, but this one is too much. Like, <laughs> right, guy, right, what, right. What's his name? Something Pearson, CJ Pearson, like uh, even that guy has limits here. He was like, yo, uh, are you serious, Candace? Do you ever see him get into the fight with Candace Owens over yeah that that is funny because it's like yeah candace owens types are the ones who are basically put out to say what white people are thinking but in the black but in a black face so that they can get away with it but then they kind of like fulfilled their mission too well yeah and, yeah and, and the and, yeah the video was so horrifying that people, like even, yeah, people were like we didn't ask you to do all that you're going yeah, above yeah. and beyond the yeah, call yeah, doing right, that right. no i i have a funny story because it was like right when we were, you know, we, my job went into lockdown. And then right when we were coming back was the beginning of June um, when all this stuff popped off. And I mean, Portland, Maine is obviously very white. So there wasn't the most that happened was an urban outfitters window got smashed. Um, which even then, like the manager was like so incredibly horrified and was so furious about the fact that, you know, and this guy's like, a, you know, 50 year old extreme square type. But, you know, that anyone would violate the sanctity of Urban Outfitters um, infuriated him. But the owner also like in who is a, you know, has a huge boner for cops. He always talks about he always has all these cop stories and how much he loves cops. But he like insisted that he give me a ride home one night. Um, because he was like, it's too dangerous because I, I walked to work. And, you know, he was telling me that, like, yeah, no, even I had even I had to say, like, that was wrong. And, you know, if I were there, I would have tried to pull the cop off of him or something. So that's uh, that's where, like, the white uh, bourgeois Republican mindset was. It was like, you know, because they because they don't want to think of themselves as genocidal monsters. Right. Yeah. Um, so they they do have a point where, like, yeah, the brutality of the system is unavoidable. But then especially and, you know, it's only it is like a twin hand type thing because 
you know, the reason the protests were so explosive is because, uh, like, the liberal institutions were caught flat-footed and they didn't see any of that coming. So they were, like, basically a week and a half before they could, you know, wrest control over it like they did back in 2015. And then once they did, you know, then nothing happened, but you still have to hear about it. So if you're not paying attention uh, and you're not, like, involved in the movement and you just keep hearing about it, um, then you just start to be like, why is this going on? And, you know, then you just want it to go away. Um, yeah, yeah, because I think, I think, yeah, that's why I mentioned that that poll, because I think, um, you know, referring back to those uh, those those parents in the 60s, because of, you know, there, yeah, there was a lot of uh, similar, you know, rioting and protesting, and particularly in, in the late 60s, so, um, and then, you know, there was your protests before that, and dogs, and all the images we know of the civil rights movement, so I think, like, in a similar way in 2020, the collective conscious of white America was, was yeah, like, kind of horrified at some of the images, but, you know, when it comes to actually, like, doing what's required to fix the problem that gave rise to those images in the first place, like, they're not willing to do it. Like, they're only willing to, they're only willing to support black people only so much. Then when you start demanding more, it's like, okay, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't, don't, hey, you know, listen, uh, I supported you people during George Floyd, but oh my God, like, how dare you bring up <laughs> defunding the police? Like, yeah, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Right. Uh, how dare you actually want to change uh anything right. uh, you know I, when you were talking a lot about white leftists but something that I find interesting well interesting not the right word um, annoying sometimes is um like there's a lot of leftists of color I say leftists of color instead of black leftists because it's not just black leftists that do this I see like Latino leftists um Mm -hmm. um, Muslim leftists, all types of leftists, where um, some of them have a leftism that's very informed by black politics and black thinkers who are thinking from a, um, the unique needs of black people. And, you know, based on my previous experiences, um, see, seeing stuff that Adam writes about and talks about on the stream, I know, like, um, your leftism is informed by a lot of um, black radical thought uh, both here and abroad in Africa and in the diaspora, you know, uh, pan-Africanism and, and different things. And con contrasted with a lot of these leftists of color who seem to just be doing the same leftism as white people, but mm -hmm. but are basically just um, giving like a black face to it, like to say, hey, um, yeah, um, like I don't want to say that they're doing what people like... Um, like what black conservatives and black liberals do, but to a degree they kind of are, where they're basically um, saying saying things that are like, uh, hey, if you think, they don't use the word class reductionist, but they'll defend something class reductionist, like uh, I'm black and I support this, therefore it's good. Or I'm black mm -hmm. and I like this white leftist uh, talking point. And, they, you know, just there to be shields. Right. And I was wondering, like, how you feel about, how you feel about prevalence of that on the scene. Like, do you find there's more leftists of color who are in your guys' camp in this recent kind of resurgence of leftism? Or do you find that a lot of the growth among leftists of color are the other type I described? Right. Yeah. I think there's, uh, there's, there's, uh, I think there's, I guess if I was to estimate, I think there's probably like an equal amount on both is just like uh, I think there's kind of a like okay for, for example it's like, definitely easy to get a platform to me yeah. right if you're the other guy yeah. I'll say that like for for example like okay so in all African People's Revolutionary Party and like the Hood Communist blog like those those types um, they there are certain left wing crowds that they wouldn't fuck with 
that some of the other black leftists and leftists of color that you're talking about who echo white leftist talking points, like they frequent those spaces. You see what I'm saying? Like there's almost yeah. like kind of like different environments that these, these people are in. Cause I think like the leftists of color that you're referring to who echo white left wing talking points, a lot of times they're organizing spaces like they're almost the token like or or if not the token they're like part of like some sort of uh vague kind of multicultural um representation i guess but when it comes to like okay like let's say like if you were to read like hood comments blog it's it, that's a really i really like hood comments but like if you read their stuff and they're very clear on where they're coming from like you know they'll say something it's like, hey, look, like black leftists need like black led organi- organizing organizing spaces. Like that's what we need. Um, uh, that kind of point would be seen as divisive within the left. So, so when you get to that point, it, the people in like hood comments are going to be like, hey, you know what? We're just not going to work with you. Uh, we'll work with you when we have like specific issues that we agree on. But like, I just think like um, there's almost like yeah, like kind of different um, crowds. And uh, I think I mentioned this earlier that like a lot of if you look even through history, even Walter Rodney, like if there was a, mm-hmm. uh, there was um, something he wrote not in how Europe underdeveloped Africa, but I think it was like he wrote something about like the British left, and he kept referring to like yeah, like they're really racist. <laughs> so, there were some leftists of yeah. color who were more like us, who were like yeah, it's the same problem. He was <laughs> it's the same problem yeah. even today. It didn't go away. Like he was talking about the British left, but it's like you could say about I guess any sort of uh, left wing. Um, crowd in like the the western world including the united states so i would say like this rise of leftism i think like there are some black radicals who are still within the black radical camp and then there are some black leftists who i think just to be fair i think from their perspective i think what they're trying to do is build a bridge between the black community and non-white communities and white leftists and actually like have like a real like coalition i, I think that's what they're trying to do which I, I don't oppose that like here's the thing i'm i'm not opposed to multiracial working class coalitions but the thing is is that like in my experience like no one's actually fucking serious about doing it that's that's the problem like it's all theory it's like yeah we need a multiracial working class coalition to overthrow capitalism great where is it uh can like can, like there's no example people can point to yeah. within the left it's like this is actually like a real organized powerful multiracial working class coalition a coalition in the sense of like everybody's needs are met and there's mutual respect between different community communities and like I'll, I'll point to um i think everybody should read chapter three of black power by kwame Ture because he digs into this because this is an age-old problem he was saying the same thing he was like look like these multiracial coalitions just don't work for black people so that means we have to change things up and so like i i take a lot of my inspiration from him in that respect that like a lot of times yeah like these like kind of multiracial because the thing is it's all superficial like people say like within the left like they care about diversity and all this but it's like in solidarity people say these words but it's like okay well what does it look like like how are you practicing solidarity like you can't say you're about solidarity but then tolerate certain anti-black microaggressions within the movement because like you can't really build solidarity when you have that as an issue you just can't so um i, I think like some of the leftists in color who are in those spaces i don't I'm, I'm not here to like shit on them but I, just to be fair to their perspective i think what they're trying to do is like actually have like a truly multiracial working class coalition which again i agree with i i just don't think it's going to happen without um real independent black power built from the ground up that's just i just i just don't see it happening because like I, 
it's just it's just going to fail and it's it's you know i don't think like white dominated leftist spaces uh without having like real strong black organizations like i don't think that they're going to take the needs of black people as seriously I as think they should something that complicates yeah. that as well is that i i think what you said is true that there's some of them who are into this for very good faith reasons even if um the rest of us might not agree with them but in their mind they're really doing the best thing for black people like they like they really think that um i mean the same thing happens with black conservatives there's some black conservatives who actually believe conservatism is the best thing for black people as in oh um welfare state and and all these things make black people as a whole weak and and they have this kind of misguided um pro-blackness to the conservatism even though i think that strain of black conservatism has kind of uh died off as white conservatives have become more and more openly racist and Mm -hmm. and antagonistic but there was this time where i remember that strain as opposed to the ones who they don't really believe it is just a way to um get clout and and grift and i would say the same thing i noticed with uh white with with that type of person of color leftist where there are some where that they do parrot on white leftist talking points but they sincerely believe in um to whatever degree of class reductionism they believe they really do believe that's the most feasible practical way to get things for black people where there are some who i think are consciously throwing black people under the bus because they want to get clout or um opposition yeah. with with white leftists so yeah i think that's another complicating I, yeah factor. i i mean i and i certainly empathize having uh i guess you know, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, unfortunately, been in very, a lot of very white spaces, though also having, like, grown up in integrated neighborhoods and going to, like, urban public schools. Um, but, I, you know, my, my heart goes out to, like, any black person that tries to, like, navigate a white leftist space because you really do have to watch your step because they'll they'll turn on you very quickly if you make any mistakes. But also, there's definitely some of that. And I think some of it is, like, you know, you may, you may just, like, wander into... I don't want to just put this on the DSA, but, you know, the stand in for that or, you know, any kind of left organization that isn't like specifically black focused. And then, you know, there's naturally not going to be a lot of black people. So then it is kind of like, yeah, oh, wow, I'm so glad you're here. And then they kind of rush you to the top, to the front um, and try to get you really involved in all that stuff. And, and you know, then you can end up being constrained. And, I, you know, I mean, definitely there are some opportunists, but I think actually a very good historical example of, you know, how to actually solve this problem is uh, the Communist Party USA organizing in the 30s where, yeah, the party started out like mostly kind of Eastern European steel workers, but, um, and guided by the Comintern, like literally, um, you know, when like CPUSA members would go to the Soviet Union, Stalin would be like, you don't have enough black people. Where are the black people? Because, you know, when you had like a broader uh, materialist understanding of capitalism and racism and imperialism, you understood that like black workers always like had the most revolutionary potential. And so you had to, you know, make a concerted effort to uh, recruit from them, which they did. I mean, they organized a lot of sharecroppers in the South and there was heavy black membership in the Communist Party. You know, if you read uh, Harry Haywood, he goes into all of this. But the thing, but one of the big things was that instead of sort of the broader left just yeah like we are against racism and we are against white supremacy and it just ending at that and we're fighting for you know a socialist future for all um, you know the CPUSA's position was self-determination in the black belt which is to say that like giving black workers and sharecroppers 
and farmers, like in the South, like their actual autonomy and self-determination. And that was the mm-hmm. buy-in that such that you could, you know, establish credibility um, when organizing. And so that's a good rep- that's a good example, though. Yes. Though then sort of later on, there were sort of these uh, struggles against white chauvinism in the party because, you know, I guess white people are just going to be white people. But I think that I think the problem is that when you have an organization that is totalizing, um, it, you know, or sees the class struggle as totalizing, you know, first and foremost, and doesn't understand, you know, different national questions, then you do end up with a problem where, like, basically, if Black members of the organization, you know, speak too loudly against something, then they are targeted as divisive. But if you come at it from the idea that, like, self-determination for uh, Black people, for Indigenous people, is a necessary part of the class struggle, then you can get more credibility, and then Mm -hmm. you'll actually start to get somewhere so you know so i i don't think any you know of the main kind of left organizations out there are really at that level and they should probably study their history Mm -hmm. but it is something that you know sort of allows me to kind of square the two things in my head yeah yeah i I agree yeah just to add on to that like there was um when the communist international came out i think it's like the the early 20th century um they actually did support pan-africanism like like they because they saw like pan-africanism as um because at the time there was still colon like Europe was still colonizing Africa and there was st- also still like intense racial segregation in the United States so like you had pan africanists who were organized and then you had like communists but who were internationalists in their perspective and so they saw like yeah the black belt thesis for self-determination for black people in the United States and anti-colonialism as crucial components of the larger struggle and so um yeah like they 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 made a real concerted effort again beyond just talking but like they made a real concerted effort to express solidarity with uh black revolutionaries um globally and w- one example i like to bring up that like i think sometimes um is counterintuitive to people is that um when lenin died marcus garvey actually like wrote uh he wrote like a eulogy to him so- something of that sort like he uh, marcus garvey actually had a lot of respect for vladimir lenin and that kind of goes with what peter was saying about lenin saying that you know certain communist parties didn't have enough that black Stalin. It was Stalin. Yeah. So, but both, uh, both of them. Yeah. yeah. I, well, because it, it wasn't until the the third international where sort of the global communist movement actually started to have good positions on colonial questions, and you mm-hmm. know they studied it and they understood that black people in America basically can constituted their own nation and kind of internal colony. That's the same you know thesis that Kwame Ture uh, ran with. But yeah, up until that point, like in the late nineteenth century and stuff, yeah. There was the, you know, it was still very Eurocentric and very problematic, let's say. But it, it, I think it does also show that, you know, through comradely struggle and criticism, you know, you can actually get to a synthesized position that actually does promote liberation for everyone. And I will say, like, I, I do think the white leftists who, like, I, I know personally have gotten along with um, the ones who take anti-imperialism seriously. Oftentimes, because a lot of times I think, like, I think if someone's a white person and they take anti-imperialism seriously, it inevitably leads to a critique of whiteness. Because like white whiteness is like white supremacy is a global thing, and imperialism is a major component to it. So um, I, I think like yeah, like it, it really does take like you know white leftists in, instead of non-white leftists going to white leftist spaces. I think it has to be in the reverse. White leftists have to go to black communities and start working wow. with black organizers. 
Yeah, there. Like, yeah, they have to do that. yeah. Though, though, yeah, the idea of a bunch of white lefties just descending into the hood on mass is a little terrifying. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't advise <laughs> that. But well, like, but have, the willingness to, to take direction is the yes, key. Exactly. Yeah, they have to work alongside and take direction with organizers who are already in black communities. Like that's that's they they can't be assuming the leadership role. They have to be working side by side with because i think like especially now like what i think has been good with the black lives matter protests that you have a lot of i think it's actually like radicalized and um trained a lot of i think like a new generation of experienced uh black organizers when it comes to abolition work um fighting against uh mass incarceration and police brutality and like there already is like a um this is excluding the d-right types like the d-right types aren't included okay. in um but the ones who are actually like engaged like on the ground in working class black communities on on these issues um like there is a lot of there are a lot of uh talented organizers who are doing very important work so like i think if white dominated left wing organizations took their cues from them and worked side by side with them it didn't dominate them but worked together yeah like i think history shown like yeah that actually works better but um P- peter's right i don't think like the the white left as it exists in the united states right now has really reached that point so hence yeah people like us critiquing them but it's not just to like bash people over the head for the sake of it but it's like you know if people learn these critiques and take them in good faith and actually implement them then i think things would things would be better because like i was saying i i do think a multiracial working class coalition is a good thing because if you look at the working class in the united states it's mostly non-white like yeah you know i I think even like the phrase multiracial working class coalition is kind of misguided in the sense that there there is no like uh uh, you know, unified working class, organized working class that isn't going to be multiracial just right. because that's the whole point of racism and whiteness is to create a bourgeois mentality. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a true working class coalition would include everybody. And like the the reality of the working class in the United States is not just white. Like there's a, a huge chunk of the American working class is non-white. And so uh, I would ask. Yeah. Like, yeah, like I, I think like, you know, I agree. I think it's a good idea. It's just like I think people have to put some serious work in making it happen. You know, I would ask you this, right? Because you guys are talking in a highly um, prescriptive way and also in the way of possibility. You're talking about how things should be and how things uh, could possibly be. And I was wondering about the descriptive, like as far as in actuality and in practice, um, how far along do you think um, we are? And it's, let's use the timeline of the past four years because I feel like mm. the last four years have been a pretty good period of shift. Like, I feel like even though mm-hmm. at the end, um, people have to complain. Some people say Bernie Sanders is just a glorified Democrat. Like, some hardcore leftists, you know, will point out, hey, Bernie Sanders at the end of the day is still like a capitalist with socialistic tendencies at, at best. And, you know, some people will argue, oh, these things happen and incremental stages and 10 years ago a Bernie Sanders would never gotten as far as he did so we should yeah. be happy with that and and not complain that he's not a full-blown uh you know Trotskyite like and and no. a lot of people have different um ideas of how far politics has come and how far it has to go and whether uh, there's anything to celebrate so I'm curious what you guys think not just about 
uh, socialism in general, but I do want to get your thoughts about that, about socialism in general's advances in the mainstream, but also mm. the extent to which the kind of ideal situations uh, between a multiracial working class left has actually shown real returns in real life of um, starting to come true. Um, I Yeah, I, I, I often think about, you know, if you're trying to summarize like the state of the left or the current state of forces, I mean, it's not good, certainly. Uh, I mean, you know, the sort of the decades of neoliberalism and just absolute war on organized labor have left the left in shambles. And I think there certainly was a lot of energy, though. I, I wonder if like presidential campaigns are actually capacity building or if they're just their own thing. And so I don't know if the Bernie Sanders campaign like has left tangible results. I think, I mean, the way I think about it is that there is like a hunger for, you know, those like left ideas. And I think even left leadership, I think, you know, I don't want to, we're not going to talk about all the force the votes stuff, but just to say that it's representative of the fact that there is like a hunger for, you know, Medicare for all and, uh, you know, better labor protections in the gig economy and all that and a lot of stuff. But it, yeah, I, I don't, I, it's, it's very hard because, you know, workplace, I think the labor movement is really like the engine or the muscle behind the left. And since that's still sort of in a pretty abject state, it's really hard, like, it's really hard to actually get anywhere. And I think, Mm-hmm. How, I think much, some, how much how much solace do you think they should get i'm sorry finish finish your thought because oh. I, I heard a break so i thought you were oh, done. I, yeah. no i was gonna say i think the bernie campaign did you know yeah it, it's yeah people put yeah there are ideas get put out there but you know we're materialists which is to say that like ideas are not the driving force it's actual it's people's actual conditions and since you know especially the biden administration but just the general trend of capitalism overall um and the fact that the american empire has nowhere else really to extract super profits from um and it's basically going to be on its way down for the rest of the 21st century means that everything's going to get worse and so there will be more of a drive toward you know there will be you know, opportunities, I guess, for the left to operate. But uh, the ability to get its shit together is uh, something, I guess, you know, I go back and forth and I see inspiring things like, you know, autonomous actions at Amazon warehouses. And actually, um, I will say, uh, like I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, which was pretty like a nothing, like very sleepy Republican town. Um, and there was there wasn't really like an activist scene or anything like that. But, you know, I watched, you know, some of them, my friends, like people I went to school with, watch sort of an actual healthy and really strong organizing culture, like build up to the point that during June, Columbus ended up being like one of the epicenters of like the movement. And I was like, holy shit. But I also saw that, you know, that took uh, like almost 10 years to build. So I think like on the ground, you know, locally, there are there is definitely advances because I think just conditions are getting worse and that's going to drive more people to action. But the main problem is uh, coordinating it and getting it together. Yeah, and, and to add on to that, I think um, I think the past four years were highly influenced by the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011 because I, I don't think Bernie Sanders would have been the household name that he is without the Occupy Wall Street movement because I remember back in 2016 I was covering the Bernie I covered the uh, Bernie Sanders rally in Oakland, California, and I remember seeing um, a lot of people who were organizing for Bernie used to be in Occupy Wall Street. So 
So there is definitely a um, continuation from like the aftermath of the Occupy Wall Street movement to the Bernie Sanders campaign. Because I think like that flashpoint of the Occupy Wall Street movement before that, like people were not critiquing capitalism. There, there was nothing. There I was mean, nothing. I re- yeah, I remember, and it was like, yeah, all you can talk about was Citizens United, um, right? And, and, and yeah, power. yeah, and and barely even that. Like people like the, the idea of like the one percent versus the ninety nine percent and inequality. Like those issues became less taboo to talk about because of Occupy Wall Street. And that really, I think, paved the way for why Bernie Sanders was able to run you know, as well as he did both in 2016 and 2020. So um, I think like the current uh, left movement that exists in the United States, like I think really owes its um, genesis to that, to that moment. Um, uh, to what level thing- would you be ecstatic or optimistic about it? You know, like I, I, to what level yeah. is it a real movement versus a scene? Because that's I, kind of my right. personal struggle. Right. I think, uh, I think the thing is, is like, um, because like Occupy Wall Street, like the conditions it was coming from were like just so like the the sort of dr- like the neoliberalism was so deeply embedded in American culture. It just to, actually just to give from some perspective. So like I remember um, the 2008 financial crash happened my junior year at Stanford, and before that, I remember at Stanford like going into investment banking was like the shit. Like everyone wanted to go into iBanking. banking, and, and then once the financial crash hit, nobody wanted to do it. Right there was like a a, a very abrupt I think fundamental like kind of ideological shift in the culture that was happening around that time and after the 2008 financial crash and then Occupy Wall Street but the thing is like because neoliberalism was so deeply embedded in American culture at that time I think the left even in 2011 was working from a very weak position so I think even now to be fair I think there have been some improvements but like uh, it's still as Peter said like pretty I guess like weak but I, I I think not even like weak like there's there's something I don't know if to call it a movement but there's definitely something going on it's yeah. just uh, it's just there because like there's no um, real organized like there really isn't much organizational capacity to harness that, that mood and I think like when Peter's talking about labor unions those are all always like the institution in the left to harness that kind of uh, anger. So like if there was like, you know, uh, even in American history, like anger at um, economic inequality and injustice, like unions did play a good, uh, a, a key role in terms of organizing masses of people on a level. Uh, yeah. and, and also for having the ability to actually interfere with the flows of capital, because that's right. the thing mm-hmm. is that, you know, the people at the top, they don't really care what's going on until their money gets fucked up. Right. And so. that, yeah. And the power of labor and unions is like one of the biggest leverage points that the left has always had not just in the united states but globally so i think like if you look at other countries because like they have stronger labor movements and unions they're able to get things done like you know go on strikes and all that and so basically like when the the mainstream political system doesn't work then it's like you have labor unions and like other organizations who are able to you know do strikes and other kinds of actions then you're able to force a concession from the system but the thing is is that like there in terms of i think like there's a kind of um maybe like been an ideological shift since 2011 and Occupy Wall Street and the Bernie Sanders campaign. But the thing is that like whatever left-wing potential there was in terms of organization, it all got sucked into the Bernie Sanders campaign. Like there's a lot of organizational capacity that was built by the Bernie Sanders campaign. But now that Bernie Sanders lost, it's like, okay, the whatever organizational capacity that exists right now, which still is not enough, but there's something that does exist. Uh, the key question is like, okay, where is it going to go? Because I, I agree with Peter. I think like with 2021, 
2021. Um, I actually think we're going to see like more social unrest because of how bad the economy is. So the next question is like, okay, who's going to who's going to harness that energy to actually implement real change? Because previously, if you had strong labor movements, unions, uh, yeah, you actually could get leverage with something like actually getting two thousand, like even something as fucking simple as getting two thousand dollars a one-time payment for a stimulus during a pandemic, and it's just getting worse. We can't even get that. So still, like the left is still, you know, really, 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 really far behind. I mean, the reason why I mentioned Occupy Wall Street is that I think there have been improvements made since then. But like the fact that we 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 have someone like people like AOC and Ilhan Omar in Congress, and even they couldn't get two thousand uh, dollars in a stimulus check, and they could barely even get Medicare for all. The best they got was like eliminating Pago. And by the way, Pago was put in by Nancy Pelosi. Mm. So they just yeah, had to earn- yeah. So you went from negative one to zero. Right. It's not really a gain. Yeah. That's and- not good. That's just like in terms of the state of the left, and I don't want to get too much in the force of vote, but I do think it represented like we're still really, really, really yeah. far behind in the United States. We've yeah. made some improvements, but like just the fact that like uh, during a pandemic like this, where you know it, it's just getting worse. I think like over three hundred thousand people are dead. There's like a new variant of the virus that's more trans, uh, more transferable, um, more contagious than the original COVID nineteen. So there's that, and then we have these vaccines. And by the way, the vaccine rollout, we're still we're already fucking that up too. So we're fucking up the vaccine rollout. We can we barely got two thousand dollars in stimulus checks. Even even at like fucking Donald Trump agreed with it, and we still couldn't get it. So it's like yeah, it's just like the left at this point like is still really really far behind. Even with some people like Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Presley and AOC and all them like yeah, we have like justice Democrats who there's like a dozen of them in Congress, which you know that's not a negligible number that is, that is enough in the new uh in the new congress to be able to hold the party hostage but they're not going to do it right yeah and and i i, I to ask you know the, there's like a gramsci quote that's like pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will <laughs> so it's like you never really you know part of part of the whole thing is you never really get like excited um you never you try not to get all horned up because you know like it's never you're never going to get the release um but I think that, but you also can't just give up. So you have to kind of look for uh, reassurances where you can. But I think something that is just of absolute historical necessity before we can get anywhere further and something that if I saw it happen, I would start to get more confident about the direction of the left is just an actual hard break with the Democratic Party and yeah. an actual, a serious um, concerted effort to build like a party for the working class. Yeah. And if, you know, anyone that is serious about doing that, you know, I'll try to get involved with that as best I can, because I think really almost before, I don't say before anything else, because, you know, there's all sorts of components to it. But as long as the left, quote unquote, is attached to the Democratic Party, it's going to go absolutely nowhere. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.